This is KBLA Talk 1580, our phone number 1-800-920-1580, 1-800-920-1580. So glad to have you with us today uh, in this hour. Uh, a lot to talk about, as we say around here. We got a lot to talk about. Uh, do the firings of Tucker Carlson and Don Lemon from Fox News and CNN respectively signify a shift uh, in the cable television industry's values? Mm, maybe less tolerance for provocative primetime personalities? Yes, no, maybe. Are these high-profile firings indicative of any broader trends in the media industry? And if so, what do these trends mean for the future of journalism and news reporting? Or are these firings all about the money, the Skrilla? Tucker uh, fired because he cost Fox News $787 million, and Don fired by CNN before he said or did something else that might have cost CNN $787 million. Uh, and we will talk about how feminists and academics are fighting the rights anti-woke agenda. And we'll talk about this breaking news regarding uh, Emmett Till and more. A lot to get to in this hour with Karsanya K. Wise Whitehead. Uh, one of my dear friends and favorite talk show hosts in the city of Baltimore, Baltimore City. Uh, Kay, good to have you back on. How are you today? It's always a pleasure to be on with you. There's a lot going on. It's a good news day to join you. You know, it's funny you, it's funny you say that. I always laugh how the dots connect from hour to hour sometimes when you know, the person <laughs> in this hour didn't hear the person in last hour. But you both said the same thing. And for those of us in this business, this has been quite a busy news week. As you know, in our business, sometimes it's feast or famine. But this week, uh, we can't keep up with all the stories. Uh, and uh, it's been it's been quite a week, and so I'm honored to have you on to take your temperature on what you've been talking about uh, and covering this week. Let me start with this, though. I just mentioned this in the last hour, breaking news here. Uh, Carolyn Bryant-Donham, the woman at the center of the Emmett Till killing, is dead at the age of 88. You know this story well, Kay. Um, last year, there were protesters who went to the place, the facility where she was living, demanding that the arrest warrant that had finally been found all these decades later that had never been served on her because the police at the time, whoever it was, the sheriff, law enforcement said, well, she's a mother and she's got babies and we don't want to bother her. We don't want to disturb her. Um, and so for 70 years, uh, that arrest warrant was never served essentially for her lying on, on Emmett uh, and causing this mob violence, which lynched that young 14-year-old boy back in 1955. Uh, we are told now that she has died at the age of 88 in Mississippi, uh, and so, you know, as I said earlier, you never want to wish death on anyone, although every one of us, you know, is going to go the same way. We're going to get out of here alive. But there's something and I was I was actually stumbling, Kay, uh, reading this story and sharing it with our audience in the last hour, because it just troubles me to no end that she lived to be 88, 70 years, essentially, after the lynching of Emmett Till, which she caused and was never, ever held accountable for that. That's my thought. What's your take? I was thinking a lot about Carolyn Bryant Dunham. Her, her name resonates in my head because she has never been held accountable for the loss of life, uh, for Emmett Till, but also for the thousands of young African-American boys and young girls and parents who were terrorized and traumatized by what she did. I was concerned last year. I'm like, let's get her. Even if she serves one day in jail, just one day. Is enough. I, I think about Mom Beth. That that's the African American woman back, you know, whose husband served in the Revolutionary mm -hmm. War, and she sued the state of Massachusetts for her freedom, saying, "Look, your Constitution says that all men are born free and equal." Well, I'm counted under that. 
she once said, if one minute's freedom had been offered to me and I had been told I must die at the end of that minute, I would have taken it mm. just for one minute of freedom. So if she can talk about one minute of freedom and she will die afterwards, I'm saying one day of jail would have been enough to show that she is being held accountable and to show that our lives, whether today or with Emmett Till, all of the matter and the way you lie, and we end up murdered as a result of it, you should be held accountable no matter how long it takes. Yeah. Uh, our guest in the last hour um, used this phrase, which I love, uh, Kay, um, uh, our culture of impunity. Uh, that's what this represents. That's what Donald Trump represents, although the law is finally catching up to him slowly, but surely perhaps we'll mention that later in this hour. But the point is that we live in a country, believe it or not, uh, even though we say we are a nation of laws, there is, in fact, a culture of impunity for certain people, and the fact that she got away uh, with uh, inside of that culture of impunity for seven decades, again, I, I don't have a language for it, Kay. I think it's a culture of racialized laws. I think that's why the teaching that Kimberly Crenshaw, Derek Bell, and others have done around critical race theory, that's why that's so important, mm -hmm. because it teaches us how race is embedded within the law. If it's a culture of impunity and we're based upon laws, we've got to talk about how race and how gender and how class are embedded within the laws, and then it determines who's on the other side, how justice gets meted out. And we have to be honest about that, and we have to recognize where we sit on that continuum and where we have always sat and what we're fighting against and what we're fighting for. Yep. One of the things I always do is just an exercise I've been engaging in for many, many years, and, and there's nothing deep or scientific about it. It's pretty, it's pretty simplistic, frankly, and elementary. Uh, but it always drives home the point uh, for me and for audiences with whom I engage. And that is to think about, to your point, uh, your brilliant point now, Kay, that is to think about these incidents in the reverse. And and then you see who America really is. You see where I'm going with this, right? So, I can see exactly where you're uh, yeah, going. So, so imagine, if you will, imagine, if you will, a black person uh, accused of lying or guilty of lying on a white person who ends up being murdered, lynched, what have you, getting away with that for 70 years and the arrest warrant never even being served. Forget being, you know, being brought to justice. The arrest warrant against that Negro wasn't even served, even though he or she lied and caused the lynching, the murder, the death of a white woman. Can you imagine that ever happening, Kay? I, it, you know, I, I'm not being naive, but again, I want the audience to think about it in the reverse. If I can add to that reverse you're laying down is the recent case that happened in Lubbock, Texas. A black man, Larry Pearson, 36 years old, mm. found guilty on two counts of harassment of a public servant. He spit at the cops. And they said, we need to make him an example. A black man in custody spit at white cops, and he was sentenced to 70 years in prison. So he can be an example of what you should not do toward police. We're not talking murder. We're not talking beating. But because he spit at the cops who were white, we need to make an example out of him. So when you add that to her getting away and the possibility of what would happen if it was a black person who then did this to a white person, we don't even have to imagine. We can look at what happened with spitting at a white police officer yeah. today. Yeah. Not even going back to 1955. We can talk about that as a recent case to let us know what does it mean about who's on the side of, quote, standing your ground, who's on the count of, quote, you know, meeting out justice, and who's on the side of receiving it. I guess 70 is the number of the day. The brother gets 70 years for spitting at white cops, and she survived 70 years after the murder of the lynching of Emmett Till, never being brought to justice. But now 
Uh, at 88, she is deceased. I wonder, though, uh, and maybe Kay and I will speculate on this when we come forward here in a moment. I, I'm just, uh, yeah, this is worth speculating on, I think. I, I wonder what happens when you are when you live 70 years and you know that you know that you know that you caused the death, the murder, the lynching of this 14-year-old black boy named Mimi Teal. She, she may have never been arrested. The arrest warrant, again, never served. She was never brought to justice. But, but I'm just wondering... Um, allowed whether or not or how in fact she lived with that reality for 70 years um i'm curious to what as to what Kay thinks about that our guest in this hour is scholar award-winning journalist and professor dr kasanya k wise whitehead you're listening to her right now on kbla talk 15 getting your assumptions and expanding your inventory of ideas let's get back to tavis smiley on kbla talk 1580 our guest in this hour is award-winning radio host and esteemed scholar dr k wise whitehead who i'm pleased to have on in this hour um she holds it down in baltimore city uh and uh again uh, always delighted to be in dialogue with her we were talking moments ago in case you've just tuned in i want to come back to this right quick here before we move forward so much other stuff to cover in this hour uh about this breaking news that carolyn bryant donham uh, whose words doomed emmett till um, caused him to be lynched, uh, to be murdered, and uh, later found in the Tallahatchie River. Uh, this all happened, of course, in 1955 in Money, Mississippi. Um, Carolyn Bryant Donham, who was never uh, served in arrest warrant, never held accountable for Emmett's lynching, uh, has died at the age of 88. Um, last year, uh, they refused, uh, under pressure, uh, to indict her. Uh, and so um, she escaped any kind of responsibility for this for 70 years, essentially. Uh, I was saying to, to Kay a moment ago, uh, Kay, the, the fact that she lives for seven decades after his murder, I can't get inside her head, but I'd love to. Like, what, how, does somebody, how do you think somebody processes something that becomes a seminal piece of American history? A seminal piece, a seminal story, if you will, in civil rights history. You are at the center of this, and for 70 years you get away with it. But in your head, in your heart, for 70 years, you know what you did. You know what happened. You know how, what you were responsible for. How, how do you think one lives with oneself for 70 years in that regard? Well, I'd like to introduce something into the conversation. And thank you so much for the question, Tavis, and for giving me an opportunity to be in conversation with you again. I really enjoy it. Um, I do a lot of, of slave research and, and trying to think about that peculiar institution and the impact of American slavery on enslaved people at that time and those who were also plantation owners. And I know we talk a lot about, you know, the, the post-traumatic slave disorder, what we're dealing with as a result, that kind of generational understanding of what happened to us. I think there's something in there for the descendants of plantation owners. There's a certain amount of antisocial personality disorder that has to be passed along generationally to be able to live with yourself and abuse and torture and rape and kill people at will for hundreds of years. Mm. You never have to be accountable because you own them. So you can do whatever you want. And when that's taken away from you, you feel comfortable torturing them, lynching them, burning crosses on their yard without feeling any feelings of guilt. I don't know if Carolyn Bryant ever felt any guilt. I don't know if she has antisocial personality disorder or in her mind, 
she made peace with it. It was a part of the time. It was what I felt was necessary and that she put it behind her. I don't know if she ever wrestled with that. I do know that part of people moving on is the way in which they make sense of the past that they have descended from. It's that, oh, I've never owned a slave, so it doesn't mean anything to me without understanding the deeper impact of that peculiar institution on all of us who are descendants of the people from that time. As you can tell, she's not just a brilliant uh, talk show host. Uh, she is an associate professor of communication and African and African-American studies at Loyola University, Loyola University in Maryland. Uh, and um, you see uh, why um, students love taking her classes and why folk love listening to her program on the East Coast in Baltimore City. Thank you. Let, let, no, I mean that sincerely. We'll I, I didn't talk about I, this today, definitely. No, I didn't, I didn't see that coming. But I mean, I, your intellect is vast, uh, and I didn't know that that was part of your uh, expertise and research study. Uh, but I love how you brought that to the fore. It, it fits beautifully into this conversation and, and, and gives us a framing um, that I can use uh, in the days ahead as we talk about um, this story and, and others, sadly, similar to it. Um, let, me, let me just ask one final question on this before we move forward. And that is what this says to you in this moment, um, in late modernity, 2023. What's this say to you about justice in this country? I'm asking a broad question deliberately to give you as much palette as you need to paint. But when you look at a white woman that got away with this for 70 years, what does this say to you in real time about so-called justice in America? I often think about that, that long arm uh, of justice that Dr. King talked about. Mm -hmm. What does it mean to have that long arm that's bending? And we know that Dr. King picked it up from something that was said in the 1800s, right? That idea that there is a moral arc of the universe mm -hmm. and that it bends towards justice and that justice delayed is actually justice denied. I think about Carolyn Bryant, but I line that up, Brother Tavis, with all of the black mothers who brought up children that became adults who were unarmed and who were killed by the police, and they never received a day of justice. I'm not talking about payoffs that are done on the civil side. I'm talking about the cop that shot that final shot that killed Breonna Taylor being hired as a deputy in another county. Mm. I'm talking about the ways in which we have people in this country who have never seen the people that killed their unarmed loved ones serve one day in jail and having to go to bed and wake up every morning knowing that person is walking free, that person is going to be raising their children, hugging their children, being with their family members, and you have an emptiness that will never be filled because justice is not going to come. Mm. What's, what's your research since you went there? I'm going to follow you. You started this. You started, so it's, blame yourself for it. You started. I'm just going to follow you. <laughs> but what, what, what's your research say to you? Um, now you got my mind working here. What's your research and, and, and your study uh, of expertise say to you about the ways in which black people process and deal with the pain over centuries of knowing that people got away with stuff that caused them harm, maiming, or even murder? Um, my, my, my dear friend, uh, now gone, uh, Maya Angela, who I think of often, uh, once said to me, oh, yeah. okay, um, she was like a godmother to me, took me on my first trip out of the country to Africa. And people know the story. I've written a book mm -hmm. about my relationship with her for almost 27 years mm -hmm. yeah. as, as, as a godmother, essentially. Um, Maya once said to me, uh, she's a baby uh, processing pain without perpetuating pain is, mm -hmm. is rough business. Processing mm -hmm. pain without perpetuating pain is rough business, she once said to me. 
And I'm thinking now, uh, given the points that you've made about the ways in which black people over, you know, over, over, you know, centuries, over decades have had to deal with processing that pain without perpetuating that pain, but pain born of knowing that somebody got away with something that caused them or their loved ones harm. So I want to lay a couple of things out, and, and thank you for this. And, of course, uh, I know your relationship with Maya Angelou, Auntie Maya, yes. <laughs> as I like to think of her as, um, an aunt to us all. But, but I, I think about what does it mean for black people to stand up straight in a crooked world? Mm-mm. What does it mean for us Ooh. to be able to get up every day and still have hope? that something different is going to happen. I, I don't believe in the, you know, that we are black people are magicians. No, I just think we are tenacious survivors and that we have learned over time that despite what is in front of us, behind them is the potential of something better. I mean, it is what we learned from our grandmothers. It is what we saw in our grandfathers. And I do believe that that gets processed in us, that we have to keep pushing forward, even when everything around us would want us to be on our knees, we find a way to stand up anyway. And when we do get to our feet, we try to pull our children up as well. I really do believe since you brought in, you know, Auntie Maya into that, that line about being, you know, the hope and the dream of the slave, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Like, what does that mean that when I look at my own two sons and I see them and I have a son getting ready to graduate from college and I look and go, you're what they were talking about. Like, you were what they prayed for. When they were out in the fields of South Carolina, when they knew they would never experience freedom for themselves, but they got up and kept living anyway, it was because you're going to be in 2023 walking across that stage with English and history honors. You're what we're talking about in terms of the hope and the dream. You actually have to begin to live the life for the generations after you, the ones you will never see they'll have a better time because of what you're doing at this moment. I think there's something about who we are as a people that because of our situation, because of what's happened to us, we rise every single time. We just keep rising. Mm-hmm. And it's not magic. It's just that tenacious spirit born in us through fire and through terror and through trauma that keeps showing up and keeps helping us to get up. Kay always gets me going, and she always gets my mind uh, just <laughs> running faster than I can keep up with in a live radio program. Uh, and she always gives me—I've I've never talked to her one time. Uh, this is one of my one of the great tributes I can give to her. I think uh, I hope I hope she received in that way. I, I've never spoken to her without walking away with a series, without pages of notes. Uh, and there's always oh, there's no there's always one or two or three things that you give me that I hold on to for days to come. And you just dropped it, and I'm sure the audience heard it. Uh, what does it mean to stand up straight? In a crooked world, I'll be I'll be marinating on that one the rest of the day. Uh, what it means uh, for us to stand up straight in a crooked world. You could teach a seminar series on that theme, uh, and maybe I will somewhere down the road <laughs> as I borrow that from Kay. Uh, what it means to stand up straight in a crooked world. That's that's our challenge um, perennially as black people. Uh, and since you mentioned again my as well, and you mentioned that poem on the pulse of morning. Uh, this is the poem uh, for those who are, are too young to remember and for those who don't remember or vaguely remember. Go look it up today. I want you to read again. I'll give you one assignment uh, if I can be so bold. Uh, Google Maya's poem on the pulse of morning. 
the poem by Maya Angelou that she delivered at the inauguration of Bill Clinton uh, on the pulse of mourning. My favorite line in that uh, poem, and Kay just referenced one of hers. My favorite line in that poem, though, uh, is with Maya uh, saying that we were stolen, bought, mm. and sold into slavery, arriving on a nightmare, praying for a dream. There you go. We were stolen, bought, and mm. sold into slavery, arriving on a nightmare, praying for a dream. That's my Angelo. It's only my Angelo could do it in her poem on the Pulse of Morning. Uh, you take that and you combine that with Kay's point now uh, that our challenge even today is to figure out how to stand up straight in a crooked world. That'll give you something to marinate on for the rest of the day and for the rest of this week through the weekend. Uh, you want to say something, Kay? Go ahead. I just sure. Make a note. Yeah, sure. I, I want to put a quick footnote here yeah. so that people will know. As you are Googling Maya Angelou's poem, you should Google all her work. Also Google Melissa Harry, Harris Perry's 2011 book, Sister Citizen, mm -hmm. which is where I got that idea from. Yeah. The actual quote that she had is that about black women, that we struggle to find the upright in this crooked room. Mm -hmm. And I took from Melissa Harris. Harris Perry, that question of what does it mean to stand up straight in a crooked room? So I want to take it back to the sister for like planning that idea in my head oh, yeah. back in 2011 that I've been struggling and wrestling with since then. No, I, I love the, uh, <laughs> I love that you shouted her out. Uh, my mind goes yeah. to a great poem, a great, a great uh, line from somebody who said many, many years ago that uh, the, 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 uh, the mediocre borrow, the great ones just steal. The mediocre okay. borrow <laughs> and, <laughs> and the great ones steal. Uh, but I, but I, yeah, but I know, but I, I, I just, I don't even, I, don't, I, I just, I just steal, I just steal it. I hear something good and I just steal it. Um, this, this audience, this audience has heard me say more than once, Kay. Uh, the first time I use that line, uh, uh, standing up straight in a crooked world, I will give you, uh, I, I'll, I'll acknowledge that I heard that uh, from Kay Wise Whitehead. The first time I use it, I'll give you attribution. The second time I use it, yeah, the second time I use it, uh, I, I heard somebody once say. <laughs> and the third time I use it, as I always say, as I always say, um, so I'll I give you. Yeah, there you go. You know, he had the dream. There you go. There you go. There you go. Now I'll, I'll give you attribution the first time, but after that, it's mine. As I said, the mediocre borrow and the great ones just steal. Uh, but I love, uh, I, but I love the lesson you just taught us in that in in that acknowledgement. Uh, that Melissa uses one phrase, and you are empowered to think about that in another way, and you you reframe it for your own work and witness, standing up straight in a crooked world, and that's how ideas are birthed. And so when you hear something on this program or beyond, process it in your own prism. Look at it in, in, through your own lens and make it your own, and we're okay with that here on KBLA Talk 15. Find a righteous range, and don't be afraid to say what you see. For KBLA Talk 1580. I'm Tavis Smiley. She is uh, Dr. Kasanya K. Wise Whitehead, uh, author and scholar and professor and award-winning radio host and anything else she wants to do. She's a bad sister, and I'm always delighted to have her uh, in dialogue uh, with us here on KBLA Talk 1580. Um, we were talking before that break uh, about the challenge that we face as, as black people to, as she put it, stand up straight in a crooked world. And part of that uh, is pushing back against um, narratives <laughs> that, that are untrue. 
and uh, I've been I've been following you, um, uh, Kay. I know you are intimately, deeply involved. I saw this piece you wrote, of course, in uh, Ms. Magazine. Uh, you're deeply involved um, in pushing back uh, uh, on a variety of fronts. But this piece that you wrote, which I had a chance to read, called How Feminists and Academics Are Fighting the Right's Anti-Woke Agenda, sort of uh, dovetails nicely into this teach-in this National Day of Action that you are a part of on May the 3rd. Uh, for those who didn't get a chance to see your piece, haven't had, read it yet again, I want to just point it out to you. It's in Ms. Magazine. Uh, it's called How Feminists and Academics Are Fighting the Right's Anti-Woke Agenda. For those who haven't read that piece, I would now let UK sort of uh, uh, unpack it for us. Thank you so much. So um, just to let folks know, I am the president of the National Women's Studies Association, which is the largest academic uh, association of women and other folks who are in women and gender studies. Uh, we deal with LGBTQIA issues, and we deal with African-American studies. So we follow all of this in the work that we do. Coming up on May 3rd, organized by the African-American Policy Forum, which is Kimberly Crenshaw's organization. She, of course, introduced the word intersectionality, uh, has worked in critical race theory, but they put together this huge event that's taking place all around the country, and I'm organizing what the local activities are doing in Baltimore in this part of the country. So that includes the big eight civil rights organizations, the Divine Nine, mm -hmm. uh, the Afro newspaper, uh, Asala, like everyone is pushing back against this anti-woke agenda, not just in Florida, but throughout the United States. There's like 40 states that are now involved in passing legislation to stop the teaching of African American studies, queer studies, women and gender studies, and talking about mass incarceration. Mm -hmm. What what do you? Uh, this is a broad question, obviously, but what what do you make of that particular uh, anti woke uh, movement, as it were, um, particularly in this moment? Uh, I, I always find it interesting to juxtapose the fact that we live in the most multicultural, multiracial, multi ethnic America ever. Say nothing of the fact that we are years away from being a majority minority country. All of that is real. Right. And at the same time that that is happening, you have this agenda. And maybe that's the reason why, because they see all this stuff happening. But 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 give me right. give me give me a frame. Give me a proper frame for looking at and for assessing this uh, pushback uh, against teaching the truth in this particular moment. So there is a real fear that is happening in this country about the ways in which we are changing. I mean, you just kind of laid it out. What does it mean uh, by 2040 for those who racially identify as white, who've always been in the center of the circle of privilege, who've always been the assumed race of privilege, to find themselves in the minority, to find that they no longer have the numbers to exercise the type of control that they are used to having. Two things I believe are taking place. One is that they're in the process of setting up what looks to be a modern-day apartheid system, right, where they're going to collate power into the hands of a few people who, who fit at the table that they have created. But the second piece is they are systematically working to stop the teaching of anything that doesn't fit their historical narrative where whiteness is centered. Because remember, when you train young people in first, second, third grade, sixth grade, in 12th grade, when you talk to them about the diversity of America, they take that into adulthood. They, they reframe how they see themselves and how they see America. So if you can stop that teaching, 
if you can go back to the days where it was only white folks in the textbook and we only talked about white folks, if you erase the history of Rosa Parks and Dr. King, you would then reframing how these young people are going to be taught and who then is going to have the power as they get older. That's what they're going for, a lifetime understanding and control of the political power, which also shifts the economic power, the social power, the psychological power, and the emotional power of our country. Let me ask you another broad question here. Um, I'm thinking now about the fight back that you and others are engaged in with this National Day of Action on May the 3rd. I'm thinking about the fight back that was successful in Tennessee when they pushed those two brothers out of their seats. Uh, yes, the, 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 the two Justins, yeah. Um, g- give, me, <laughs> give, me, give me your assessment in this moment of the fight back in this country. I don't want to call it mother now. I, I want you to do what you want to do with it. But just talk about, as you see it, the fight back in this present moment. I think that we are all faced with a very big question at this moment. What type of country do we want to live in? Mm-hmm. Do we want to force this country to live up to its creed and reflect all the people in this nation? Or do we want to go back to what we used to have? Uh-huh. And I don't know too many people that would consider themselves to be very conscious about what is happening now and who are aware of what we have come from who want to go back. But the people who want to take us back are the people that are afraid that they are losing their power center. And the way they can control that is in what I call the three battlegrounds, right? So, you know, the evangelical church is a battleground in this country. Mm -hmm. The Bible Belt is using scripture to try to, you know, regulate laws. Second is the classroom. Who gets taught what and where and how? And third, of course, is the ballot box. So if you want to control the direction of this nation, you got to look at the battlegrounds. And if you are willing to push back, it is not just enough, Tavis, to say, I don't agree. You got to vote with your feet, you got to vote with your hands, and you got to be actively involved. And it starts with doing something on May 3rd to show we have the numbers, even something small. I mean, here's what I call low hanging fruit. Mm-hmm. Buy some of the books that are on the banned book list. Get the 1619 Project. Get The Hate You Give. Get stamped by Ibram Kendi. Put them in a bin that you buy from a Kmart or a Walmart and drop the bin off at a barber shop. So that when young people go to get their hair cut, they can pick up one of those books and they can read them while they're sitting there. These are low-hanging fruit things that everybody can do. Mm. To your 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 uh, your triangle there of the church, the classroom, and the ballot box. Let me just ask you uh, uh, about each one of those individually. Um, again, we're talking about the fight back. I'm I'm just trying to get your assessment of of how you think we're doing with the fight back in this critical moment <laughs> to 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 save our democracy. Right, or Dr. King would say, uh, who you invoked earlier, to redeem the soul of this democracy. Um, how are we doing in the fight back? Specifically, number one, with the church. Well, this idea, because um, I always put the church as part of what we're talking about, because we, we tend to say that we are a Christian nation. We tend to use this church to try to control a woman's choices around her reproductive rights. We try to mandate laws through what we call a, a biblical compromise. I think that people have to understand that this nation has a separation of the church and the state for a reason. It's not just about what you accept as your religious belief, and you only want that in a school. That is not what it says. It's talk about the free exercise of religion being separate from the way in which we mandate laws in our state. And using the church to shame people, using the church to, to, rant, to make, regulate laws, is where the danger is. It's what we see that's happening across the South. And the way we push back is that we force those that are in power, that are using the Bible. And there's nothing wrong with using the Bible. I'm not saying that. I'm a 
a PK. You know, I'm a Sunday school teacher. I'm not mm-hmm. saying there's something wrong with using the Bible. I'm saying bringing the Bible into the courtroom, bringing the Bible into laws, that's where it gets confusing because you're shaming and guilting people into following what you're laying out because you're taking it through a religious lens. And that's what we're pushing back against on that level. Right. So how are we doing uh, vis-a-vis the fight back in the classroom? Well, that's what we're doing on May 3rd, where we are working with teachers. We are providing a curriculum for them to teach. We are buying up banned books and making sure that people are going to get them. We are asking people to organize pop-up teach-ins around the nation. We're asking them to do read-alongs of banned books. We're having people, you know, one of the main people, Kimberly Crenshaw, she'll be everywhere giving talks and talking about what we can do and what does it mean to fight for academic freedom, not just in higher ed, Tabitha, but we're talking about PK through 12th grade. Mm-hmm. We're talking about the real battleground, right, where young minds are shaped and formed. We also want to provide support to teachers and co- my colleagues who are in these states because many of them are afraid. They're afraid that they're going to lose their job. So the work I do as the president of NWSA is I draft statements, and they can put those statements out, and they don't have to put their name on it. They can be protected, but NWSA as the organization can stand in that gap and put out the information and directly challenge what's happening on the local level. And finally, with regard to this uh, <clears throat> this uh, uh, trifecta, this, uh, this triangle, um, how are we doing uh, with the fight back at the ballot box? We got to go back to Wednesdays in Mississippi, right? Yeah. We got to go back to, yeah. to Dorothy Ahai's idea, right? We got to go door to door to get people to register to vote. And then we have to do the fight on the local and the national and the federal level to make sure that the ballot box is open and available to people. This is why the work of someone, for example, like Stacey Abrams was so important in Georgia. What does it mean? She's not the only one. I just, of course, immediately mm-hmm. went to Stacey Abrams as I'm thinking about her work soon to be. Howard, but immediately thinking about Stacey Abrams, what does it mean to go door to door? And I think in a lot of states, people have gotten complacent. We know what happens. I mean, I I argue, Tavis, that Donald Trump, and I know people don't like to mention his name, that Donald Trump was a necessary evil. Mm -hmm. Why? Because when Donald Trump was in office, everybody was politically engaged. It was a fight for life and death. I think Mm -hmm. when you have a president where you don't feel like their hand is always on the button, you get a little bit more complacent. We have to dial up the stress level for people to understand that we may not be losing on the national level in terms of the House or the Senate, but we are losing on the local level because they're blue at the top and they're red down near the bottom. Mm. Um, you went there, uh, and I'll, again, I'll follow you. <laughs> I ain't hating on them. Uh, I, I, there are a bunch of them that work in this in this in this uh, station. I'm talking now about the about the Howard Bison. I got a bunch of Howardites uh, that work yeah. work in this station. But is it just me, or is everybody going to Howard? Everybody's going to Howard. Tallahassee Coast, Nicole Hannah Jones, Felicia Rashad, Stacey Abrams. Everybody's going to Howard. I'm an HBCU baby. I went to Lincoln University, Pennsylvania. I'm also a, a professor. So I'm always thinking about the ways in which we prop up superstars. Yeah. And perhaps we're not doing enough to support just the regular old grind professors like myself who just show up every day and do the hard work who may not be on you know, <laughs> a television show. It may not have a Pulitzer Prize, but I'm thinking there's got to be a way that. Oh, we uh, lost. Why did that critical moment? We lost her. Yeah, we lost her audio. We'll get her back. We'll get her back. Uh, get her audio back and uh, continue this conversation between now and the top of the hour. But uh, again, to underscore the point, everybody seems to be going to Howard these <laughs> these days. Uh, we'll continue our conversation with Kay Wise Whitehead when we come forward on KBLA Talk fifteen eighty. 
uh, Kay about the fact that everybody is going to Howard, and I, I, I ain't mad at him. But let me just <laughs> let me just say though uh, that you Don't are get a brilliant. Me in trouble, by the way. Say it Don't again. Trouble. Say it again. Don't get me in trouble with HU. Ah, uh, no, I don't want to do that. I'm not doing that. I just want to give you your, give give you give you your own props. Uh, she's named by Essence as one of uh, the woke 100 women changing the world. She is the best radio host in Baltimore. Uh, so says the Baltimore Sun. She's one of the top 100 women in Maryland by the Daily Record, and one of 25 women to watch by the Baltimore Sun. So Kay Wise Whitehead is doing her own thing, uh, and so I ain't mad at her. Um, l- let me let, let me just ask though, um, since you went there, because I think there's something there. Um, for a minute, and uh, you recall this some years back. Um, there were these, um, uh, these, uh, protests and, 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 and bombings and, and pushback against HBCUs. You, you remember that moment when they were just under attack, um, these, yeah, these HBCUs and, um, it, uh, thankfully we, we got through that process, uh, where people were just attacking, literally attacking these campuses. Um, uh, and now you have Howard sort of experiencing a renaissance, or again, Ta-Nehisi Coates and Nicole Hannah-Jones and now Stacey Abrams and Felicia Rashad. People are going back to Howard uh, in droves. And I know that's going to be great for the students there. I mean, you have to be jealous of the students. They're having access to all of that brilliance on a daily basis. It reminds me, and you recall this as well, Kay, back in the day when Skip did this at Harvard, right? Skip Gates. Yeah assembled yeah. the the dream team as it were he was there and cornell west was there and anthony <laughs> appia was there <laughs> and william julius wilson was there everybody was at harvard everybody with this dream there. team but I, I like this idea of all these black uh, folk who are many of them iconic in their own right assembling to teach students on this one campus in washington dc at howard i like it I really do. What, what I would like to see, um, because what, one of the things about the Harvard Dream Team, and I love Dr. Skip, a uh, big fan of his work. He actually did a blurb of my book, and I was in one of his uh, documentary series. Mm-hmm. So I love what he did. But not many people could get into Harvard or have access to Harvard. So it was out of reach for most people. What Howard has is accessibility. And what we now have is social media. Like, get the Dream Team together. Ta-Nehisi Coast, Nicole Hannah-Jones, do a series and put it online. Mm-hmm. So that folks all over the country who can't go to Howard, can't get into Howard, can't even imagine themselves at Howard, can get a little bit of that brilliance for them, too. Yeah. That's what I love about it. Like, let's connect it all up. No, I love it. I love it. Our remaining moments with uh, Dr. Kasanya K. Wise Whitehead when we come forward on KBLA Talk 15. That's all we have time for is a little bit more with K. Uh, Wise Whitehead in this hour. Um, K., what do you believe the exit of Tucker Carlson at Fox News and Don Lemon at CNN means, if anything, for cable news in the years to come? I think that what we're seeing with Tucker Carlson, I think this was a moment of reckoning because many people believe that Tucker Carlson, like a big bank or an airline, was too big to fail. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that nobody <Yeah. laughs> uh, could stop Tucker Carlson. Um, but like we learned with, with Michael Jordan, somebody can, some coach can always sit you down mm-hmm. if they need to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was a moment of reckoning. I'm not sure if it's about Tucker Carlson's views or about the $700 million-plus payout mm-hmm. combined with the other lawsuit that's in the works. 
Uh, Tucker Carlson will, of course, land on his feet. He's been fired from all the networks now, so I'm sure <laughs> somebody will pick him up because he has an incredible following. So I'm not as concerned or interested in that. When there, there was a lot of, you know, shouts of hallelujah, ding dong, the witch is dead, when Tucker Carlson was fired, right, because mm-hmm. of the things he has said about black folks, about folks who are economically challenged, and about the state of democracy in support of Donald Trump. So I put that one to the left and say, what's next? The one I'm more concerned about, though, is the ways in which you have what's happening with Don Lemon. Not the allegations, which he should be held accountable for, but the fact that they are connecting the fact that he was let go to his conversation with the presidential candidate, Vivek. And I Mm. I went back and I watched that conversation. And what does it mean to be told who we are and to stand up and say, you know what, there's something to be said about our experience and you just can't speak into our experience Mm -hmm. because it's not just about what you see as a historical reference, but our anecdotal information, our personal point of view, the fact that we're both a witness and a participant in our own life story that cannot be discounted. And so I'm, I'm wondering about the puppet strings behind what led to the firing of Don Lemon. Yep. I went back to your point and saw that as well. And if you have not, if you're listening now, you've not seen um, what they said was the straw that broke the camel's back. And that is Don Lemon uh, in uh, at the time hosting, co-hosting the CNN morning show, uh, pushing back against this Republican candidate who was just completely out of line. I just thought he was out of line and, and he was completely wrong. Out he was out of line and wrong. Yes. As my big mom would say, loud and wrong. Right. He was loud and wrong. And in that regard, and I've had issues with Don over the years. Don, I know each other. I haven't always been a fan of Don in, 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 in certain instances. But in this particular instance, Don was right. He was so on point to push right. back in the way he was, he was right. pushing back against this Republican uh, candidate, uh, Vivek. And for that to be the thing that uh, pushed him out the door, as we are reading in the New York Times and elsewhere, is is unnerving for me uh, because of the same reasons yeah. you just laid out. If you want to, if you want to get rid of Don for X, Y, or Z, that's one thing. But you cannot tell me that the straw that broke the camel's back was this black man chin checking this brother, uh, this, this 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 person trying to tell us about our history. Uh, that that can't be the reason you that you pushed him out the door. And so again, if you've not seen the interview that Don did with this Republican candidate, uh, Vivek. Um, check it out because I think you'll feel the same way that, that, that Kay and I feel that that can't be, that can't be the rationale. But again, to her point, it raises all kinds of questions, uh, about a, about a black man being pushed out for checking, for chin checking people who don't have our history right. And that's troubling in a variety of ways. Out of time, we'll leave it there. Um, Kay, uh, congrats in advance on the success of the May 3rd National Day of Action. We'll keep talking about that around here. Always a delight to have you on. Have a great rest of the day. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Hour three of Tabby Smiley. When we come forward after uh, news, traffic, and sports, you're listening to KBLA Talk 1580.